And Paul read to us the verses we're going to be looking at this morning in verses 17 through 24. Thank you all for praying for us. Uh, last week we were supposed to be away in January and sickness came and we had to cancel that. And so rather than lose the payments and the credits and all those type of things, we just tacked it on to the end of uh, the expositors event that uh, myself and all the other elders, uh, elders went to. And in that conference, uh, it's called the Churchman Conference. It's when all of the pastors of the Expositor Seminary gather together, all 11 churches and men from all those churches. It's not a celebrity conference. It's focused on shepherding and, and really on, on being good churchmen, serving the body of Christ well. There's preaching and there's also a Q&A time. So they put five of us up on the platform and, and uh, they'll rotate through and they'll ask specific questions. And during one of those question and answer times, one of the, the TS pastors was asked this question. What do you believe is the greatest danger that your church faces today? That was the question. It's the greatest danger facing your church Today And after a pause, his answer was, I am. And he went on to say, if the sin that resides in my heart is left unchecked, then I am the greatest danger my church faces. Now, I don't think that was the answer that the moderator was expecting. He's probably expecting something like, you know, woke theology or liberalism or, or some threat outside of, of the church, but it's a very biblical answer. One of the greatest dangers that any Christian faces is, is not outside, out there in the world, but, but it's inside your own heart. Martin Luther, when asked uh, if he feared the Pope, got it right whenever he said, I am more afraid of the great Pope's self reigning in my heart than the one sitting on the throne in Rome. And that's where Paul has been focusing us in, in Romans chapter 2. Uh, after dealing with the outward immorality of the pagan in chapter 1, he, he turns his guns toward the inward sin of a, of a religious person. And the Apostle Paul has a message. He, he, he can't wait to share it with the, with the Roman believers. Uh, the message is the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. He's, he's so eager to present this message, he, he writes a 16-chapter letter dealing with its contents. It's the longest letter that, that Paul uh, ever wrote. Uh, 1 Corinthians is very close behind. He he was so eager that, that, that he writes the letter when, when significant duties are pressing in on him. You, you, you might remember Paul was hastening to Jerusalem to carry an offering there to the poor, and the saints in Jerusalem were, were hurting badly. They, they need these resources, and, and he's being accompanied, Paul's being accompanied by representatives from these giving churches that gave these large sums, and, and he spends three months outside of Corinth, and and during that three months, he delays before he goes to Jerusalem in order to write Romans. And he even tells us how eager he is to deliver this message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the theme of the letter. You remember in verse 15, uh, for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And the word eager is from two words, pro and thumos, pro before uh, thumos is where we get the word passion. So, I mean, Paul's saying, I am preloaded. I, I am ready to fire the gospel gun. I mean, the bullet is in the chamber, and I cannot wait to pull the trigger. And with all that eagerness that, that you're aware of, that Paul says he has, and all that background, you might ask yourself, so, so when's he going to pull the trigger? Uh, I mean, he's brandished the gun. He's told me what's in the chamber. I've got my fingers in my ears. But for two chapters, all Paul's been talking about is judgment and wrath. There's judgment on the Gentiles in chapter 1. There's judgment on the moral person in chapter 2. And I keep showing up Sunday after Sunday, and there's no passages about grace or faith alone or Christ's salvation. All I get is wrath and judgment. That's not because Paul's eagerness has, has waned. 
Because Paul knows you must understand what you need to be saved from or who you need to be saved from before you can hear how to be saved. And that's something I'm afraid that's, that's been lost in, in our modern version of, of Christianity. At least it seems to be that way in a lot of places. Dallas Willard, in his essay on the history of evangelicalism, called Christ-Centered Piety, said, historically, the, the genuine evangelical tradition, we would, oh, we're Baptists, but we would call ourselves evangelical, meaning that we want to see people come to Christ. Uh, we believe salvation's Christ alone. It's from the Scriptures alone. And, and, and we want to share that message with the wor- world. He said, historically, in the genuine evangelical tradition, which we would be part of, there, there were three clear elements present. Number one, there was the conviction of sin. Number two, there was the necessity of conversion. You must be born again. And and number three, there was testimony, meaning a holy life. It gives evidence of of that conviction and that that conversion. Willard went on to say, conviction of sin is no longer a popular topic among evangelicals. It's disappeared for the most part as a recent development, he said. Mordecai Ham, the evangelist who converted Billy Graham, preached for weeks before he would give an opportunity to receive Christ. It was, it was so heavy, it drove Christians to become so burdened that they went downtown and rented empty store buildings in order to invite people to Christ because they couldn't wait until Ham brought his sermons that, 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 that would come to that point. He said Charles Wesley's famous statement, I must preach law before I preach grace, was the standard, and now it's disregarded. And that is sadly true. But Romans chapter 1 through 3 shows us where that evangelical standard came from. Long before Mordecai Ham or any evangelical came along, it was the Apostle Paul. (laughs) where he preached conviction of sin, alienation from God, condemnation, a sense of eternal loss, and bondage to sin. And he says they're all prerequisite courses to the good news of Jesus Christ. Because if you don't understand those things, then then you'll think very little of the forgiveness that's being offered to you by Jesus. This is exactly what what the Lord said in Luke chapter 7. He said it in a very simple way. Jesus said, for this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. I don't think what the Lord meant by that was that that other people had little sins, and so they needed a little forgiveness. What what he was saying was that this woman understood her sins were were great before God, and because she understood the, 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 the significance of her sin, she... She, she was thankful. She loved the Lord a lot. You see, contrary to contemporary thinking, the, the key to finding joy and inner peace is not discovered in hearing less about your sin or, or hearing how special you are to God or to build your self-esteem. It, it actually comes from hearing more about your, your sinful condition. Because when we realize how truly needy we are, that drives us to Christ who can actually set us free. And even after coming to, to salvation, being reminded of that produces joy and, and thanksgiving because we, 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 we hear once again and realize once again the grace that was necessary, the grace that was required in order to save us. And so for the three chapters Paul has been doing and is doing this spade work in his gospel garden. He's, he's declaring all people of all walks of life are, are guilty of rejecting God. The Gentiles suppress the truth in chapter 1. The religious people pervert the truth in chapter 2. And universally, all people deny the truth and are under sin in chapter 3. And we're in chapter 2. We're right in the, the middle of that. And Paul's been applying God's standards to us as religious people people who know right, that people who have the right revelation. We have the Bible, uh, people who have the right worship. We worship God instead of idols. We, 
We, we have the right rituals and the right position. We're the people of God. We're the church of, uh, of God. And, and in verses 1 through 5, he, he corrects a religious person's faulty view of themselves and, and their sin. Verses 6 through 11, we saw him correct their flawed, uh, flawed belief about God's judgment. It's not going to fall to them. And then the last time we, we left off, we saw verses 12 through 16. Paul shows how that impartial judgment that, that God says is coming, how that works itself out in two types of people, the, the Gentiles who don't have the written law and then the Jews who do. How, how's God going to be impartial to, to Jews and Gentiles? One who has his law and, and, and one doesn't. And, and today he's going to focus us on a new problem. It's actually a problem that's unique to religious people. He's been arguing for 16 verses that on the day of judgment, God will not treat a religious person any different from an irreligious one. Your religion is not going to, to cause God to, to, to look up from the book and see you. God's not a face receiver. See you and then say, oh, you're, you're, you were born in a Christian home, as one preacher said, or, or, or you're a Jew, or, or you're a religious person, so I, I'm going to treat you different. His eyes are going to be fixed on the, on the record, and everyone will receive equal treatment. And because God's righteous judgment is based on a person's deeds, without partiality. The Jews will be judged by the law of Moses that they have, and when they're held to that light, their deeds will prove that they're condemned. And the Gentiles will, will be judged by the, by the law written on their heart, evidenced by their conscience. And their deeds will also prove that they're guilty before God. While the Jews were listening, these religious people were listening to this argument, Paul knows that there is a particular danger religious people are susceptible to. And it's lurking where, where they least expect it. It's the danger of becoming too familiar with God and His blessings. Which is what Paul's going to warn us about today. You've heard the phrase, familiarity can breed contempt. Doing something over and over and over can, can turn it into something that you just don't even pay any attention to. I mean, I, I, I love steak. I love a good steak. But if I ate steak every single night, I, I cooked the perfect one tonight, and then Monday night and Tuesday night and Wednesday night and Thursday night and, and, and Friday night, and around Friday night, I would probably still like steak, but, but it would probably be a little bit less enjoyable, wouldn't be as special. A week later, if I ate it every day. And... Well, that's what Paul says can happen to religious people. And if you've been a Christian very long, it's a danger that you face as well. People who interact with the Bible on a regular basis can become so familiar with it that they take it for granted. It's like old hat. Even the preacher preacher who spends time in exegesis can begin to treat the Bible like a textbook instead of words of life. The Christian raised in the church and attends Sunday school every week and has done so from a child can, can allow all of that grace to turn church into a routine gathering in, instead of, a, of an encounter with, with their Creator. The danger for religious people that, that have religious traditions is not traditions. Those are good. The problem's not out there. Paul says the problem's in here. The problem is that in here, the spirit of Nadab and Abihu can creep into your souls and you can get too flippant with the Lord and, and offer strange fire before Him like in Leviticus 10. Or, or, or it can even get worse. It, it, it can get worse than that where you have the spirit of Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, who were ministers for the Lord and ministered to the Lord and then fornicated with women in the very temple. If you don't keep a clear vision of God, standing, the God who's standing behind the rituals, then, then your heart has the capacity to fall into spiritual callousness, and religion has a unique way of blinding you like nothing else. You can deceive yourself into thinking that because you know about God, or even serve God, that this is what knowing God is all about. And you can even get to the point that you believe that, that knowing about God and serving God, that alone will lead God to excuse your sin on the last day. 
and in verses 17 through, through 24, Paul shouts to us, do not be deceived. That, that's a lie. And so in verse 17... He brings us uh, back to his argument that he starts in, in verse 1, and he brings that argument to a conclusion. In verses 1 through 16, Paul is, is addressing moral people in general, and now the target is named in verse 17. But, but if you bear the name Jew, the, the Jews are, are the, they're the ones who have all the blessed traditions of the Lord, that the Lord's given them, and... Paul explained while they are God's people, if they, if they fail to consistently uh, live up to, to what they claim to believe, then they'll not be exempt from judgment in verses 17 through 24. And, and then, not today, but, but later, he'll, he'll show us how, how one even gets the title of a true Jew in verses 25 through 29. He'll talk about circumcision and circumcision of the heart. It's like he goes from talking about someone to speaking directly to them. And, I mean, we know, we've known exactly who Paul's been targeting in the first 16 verses, but now he names them in, in, in verse 17. I mean, it's like somebody preaching to you and it's hitting you right between the eyes and, and then somewhere in the middle of the sermon the preacher says, yeah, I, I'm talking to you. The Jews, like, like Paul before his conversion considered themselves the, the teachers of the Gentiles, and that's his target. His target is Christians who think that they're the conscience of the culture and try to correct the unbelieving world while living carnally themselves. These are the people that call out the, the sin of the world while, while doing it. Or who sing, what a friend we have in Jesus at the top of their lungs, and then they treat their neighbors with disdain and contempt. Paul says those who fail to live consistent with what they claim to believe, they, they will, that will not be overlooked by God. And if you're doing that, if, if you fall into that, the issue is that you've become too familiar with, with the things that represent the Lord, and, and you've forgotten God Himself, you... You're too focused on the, on the curtains and the, the drapes and the tapestries and the traditions and all of those other things, which are good. And that's exactly what the Jews were doing. They were failing to live consistent to the privileges that they enjoyed and, and they, that they claimed. I mean, the, the structure of Paul's argument is pretty easy to see. He starts by identifying five privileges that Jewish people enjoyed. In verses 17 and 18, he, he goes over them. They bear the name Jew, they rely upon the law, they boast in God. He goes over five of them there. And then he details four ministries that God had given them because of those privileges in verse 19 and 20. You're, you're a guide to the blind, uh, you're lights in the darkness, instructors of the foolish, teachers of infants. And, and he says they... They possessed all of that because they possessed the law in verse 20. Having the law, the embodiment of the knowledge and, and, and of the truth. But instead of doing all those things, they were dishonoring God, which is what he calls them out on in verses 21 and 22, these, these four rhetorical questions. Do you who claim to teach, do you not teach yourself? You, you preach this, but you do that. He draws this final condemnation in verses 23 and, and 24. He says God's actually blasphemed rather than, rather than praised because of you. But you don't want to sit here and, and hear Paul is talking to Jews and, and bring your proverbial shovel instead of your rake to, to this sermon. You know, a shovel sermon. Right? Wow, I wish Susie had a, had, a, had a dose of that. or That would be really good for my husband. I wish he was here to hear that. And instead of a rake, pulling it in to yourself, I need to hear that. That's good for me to listen to. I've titled this, How to Be a Terrible Teacher, because God expects His people to, to reflect His character to the world, to the extent we are teachers of the, of the world. But, but if we don't live consistent to our profession, then we defeat that purpose and we become terrible teachers. And Paul's going to show us how we can get there. He's going to give us four indications that your religion has made you too familiar with God. You're not going to get all these but before I flip the page, but you'll get them one at a time. But let me just read them to you. Number one, when grace-given privileges are thought deserved, that's an indication. 
Number two, when God-given ministries breed superiority, that's an indication. When blatant hypocrisy is excused, that's an indication. And finally, when a blasphemous testimony becomes your reputation, that's when it's really evident. Those are all sure signs that you're off track. Let's look at the the first one that, that he gives. Again, you'll get these one at a time. The first indication your religion has made you too familiar with God is when grace-given privileges are, are thought deserved. Look if you would at verse 17. He says, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law. Paul begins to begins by listing five privileges that the Jewish people possess. They are a blessed people. They were called Jews. They, they held the law. They were given the law. They boasted in God. They, they knew His will and they were able to discern. Those are all privileges that the Jewish people have. They're privileges for sure, but they'd forgotten that they were granted by, by God's grace alone. First, Paul says, you're Jews, and it's, it's in italics, it's meaning that Jews as opposed to Gentiles. Uh, Paul means by that you're identified as God's covenant people, which was a gracious gift. Paul uses the term Jew four times in this section, verse 17 and verse 28, verse 29, verse, verse 31. And the name Jew came from Judah which means one who, who is praised or one who praises. Uh, Alva J. McLean said that the Jew was proud of that name, believing anyone who bore that name was praised to God. Uh, they, they received a name that, that means they're a people who, brings, who, who bring praise to God, and they bore that name. That was a privilege. The second privilege Paul mentions is that they, they possessed the law. They they relied upon the law. Literally, they rested upon the law. It, it means that, that the law and all of its ceremonies were, were the foundation of their lives. It defined who they are. It's like that today. It directed them as people. How do you know a Jew? It's, it, it's not skin color. They're, they're Ethiopian Jews that are, that are darker than some African Americans in in our country, it's not skin color. What identifies a Jew? It, it's that, that, that they, they, they keep the law, the, the ceremonies of the law, the, the Sabbath, and all those things. It, it set their calendars. It governed how they live. When, when, they, when they became a man or a, it governed when they become a, a man or a woman accountable to God, it structured their families. Again, it still does. And the law distinguished them from all the other nations. Exodus 19.5, And now if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my, com- uh, keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession out of all the nations, for the whole earth is mine. It was a privilege that they had. Not right. Number three, Paul says that they boast in, in God. Now when you hear the term boasting, you, you automatically think negative. Paul doesn't mean negative here. To boast means to, to, to rest in God alone, to place your trust in, in the one true God. They, they boasted in the one true creator. He alone was their redeemer. He alone is their hope. It's, it's in Jeremiah 9, 23-24. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not a mighty man boast in his might. Let not a rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, and that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Apostle Paul says he boasted in the cross. I mean, how do you boast in a crucifix? Well, he means he he placed his only hope there. And the Jewish people boasted in knowing one God. He alone is God. They they still recite the Shema every day. They boast in God every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God. The Lord is one. And not only that, number four, they, they were able to know God's will. Paul says that was a privilege that the Jews had. Verse 8, look at verse 18. And you know His will. 
And you approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law to, to know God's will. It was a privilege that they had to, to know God's will. And it, it means to know what pleases the Lord, what, what God desires. This is the word for, for desire, a thelema, not, not the word for decree, not what God decrees. This is what they knew what pleased the Lord, what, what made God happy. It means that the Jewish people have, a, have the unique blessing of not having to guess what pleased their maker. They boasted in the one true God and they knew what pleased him. They didn't have to consult talismans or make random offerings to appease the rain God in case he was offended. They knew what God desired and, and they also knew what didn't please him. And they could carry both of those out. That was a blessing that Paul says that they had. It's a tremendous privilege. And finally, because of that, they were able to discern what was, what was excellent by, by the law. This is the last thing there. They, they were able to discern. The word is dakamazo, to examine, to scrutinize, and, and then draw a conclusion. It's to discern good and good. And, it meant to put, be able to put things to the test and then decide what was essential. They could discern what truly mattered, what, what was of real value. They... And I think about what kind of blessing that is in our day when you see people all over the place living for such empty things and such empty lives. The, the Jewish people had the blessing of knowing like this matters and this doesn't matter and I want to live for this and I don't want to live for that. And God's people know what a significant life looks like. They can test it. They can see it. They can discern that. And notice both this... This knowledge of pleasing God and this discernment is traced to the law. Look at the end of verse 18. And know His will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law. The source of, of that pleasing God, knowing and, and being able to weigh that out and discernment came from God's Word. God's Word brings life. The fear, fear of the Lord brings is the beginning of wisdom. What blessings they had and had. But every one of those things came to the Jewish people by grace alone. They were Jews by grace alone. They possessed the law by grace. They, they boasted in God by grace. They, they knew God's will by grace. They were able to discern by, by grace. Deuteronomy chapter 7 de declares that plainly. Look at Deuteronomy 7. This is God speaking to the Jewish people. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And watch this. The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. So why did He do it? Verse 8. But because the Lord loved you, and kept the oath which he swore to his forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the, the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The Jewish people are not special because they're Jewish. They're special because God chose them and made them Jews. The Bible says. They're the ones that bring praise to God. They were a people set apart by God to bring Him praise out of all the other peoples. And that was the Lord's doing, not because of anything in them. And dear Christian, the minute that you forget that, the second that you allow those grace-granted privileges that you have of being a believer to drift towards something that you have earned or something that, that you think you deserve, it's a sure sign that your religion has become a curse to you. And we have all of these blessings that were that were listed here. With the privilege of be, be, being called part of the family of God. The, the name Christian means little Christ. And, but you must not forget that you bear that name by grace alone. You were once of your father the devil. And you have the whole Bible, not even just the law, not even the, just the Torah. You have both Old and New Testament, but, but it was God's Spirit who, who gave you a heart to, to desire it and read it. Do you remember what reading the Bible was like before you came to Jesus? 
I mean, you opened it up. I mean, did you want to hear the Bible? Blah, 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 all this stuff. But, but now you say more. I, I want more of God's Word. Well, well, that didn't come because you just got smart. That, that came because the Spirit of God took up residence in you by grace. And you boast in Christ alone for your salvation. You're not running around flying Buddha's prayer flags or trying to figure out which Hindu God is, is the God that you should serve to today. You know the one true and living God who is Jesus Christ and He's the only way to the Father, but it was Christ who sought you and purchased you from the slave market of sin. You're able to know what pleases God and... and, and, and and your life is, is now lived for lasting things. But you must not forget the life that you lived prior to finding the Lord and that it was His Spirit that gave you insight into His Word. And, and even having all of those privileges, Jew or Christian, Paul says that doesn't give you a pass on your sin. Even though you possess those privileges, it doesn't give you a pass on sin. Look at this very next passage, the, the passage in Deuteronomy that, that told the Jewish people why they were being going to be called Jews, people of praise, because God loved them and chose them. And, and here's the very next passage, verse, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God who keeps His covenant and His loving kindness to a thousand generations with, with those who love Him and keep His commandment commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I'm commanding you today to do them, not just to know them. And all of those privileges that God's given us and given the Jewish people are to be used to help others find the, find the same God. Here's the, the second indication that your religion has made you too familiar with God. It's when God-given ministries breed superiority. Look if you would at verse 19. Paul shifts from privileges to ministries. Verse 19. And you're confident that you yourselves, are, you yourself, are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the law, the embodiment of, of knowledge and, and truth. He, after listing the gracious privileges that the Jewish people have been given by God, by, by grace alone, Paul now lists the ministries that God provided for them to carry out because they have those privileges. Because he'd chosen them and they had these, these blessings. They were to be guides to the blind. They were to be lights in the darkness. They were to be instructors of the foolish and teachers of infants or of immature people. And every one of those ministries are, are described in the Old Testament as God's purpose for, for the Israelites. They were guides to the bond. They were, they were lights to those in darkness. Both of those are found in Isaiah, Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon. And those who dwell in darkness from the, from the prison. Look at verse 49, Isaiah 49, 6. And he says, Is it too small a thing that you should be uh, my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The salvation of God was never to stop at the borders of Judah or of the land of Israel. The salvation of God was to go throughout all the earth. But God chose Israel and raised Israel up to be a beacon of that salvation by, by grace alone and the Messiah that, that, was, that was coming. Both of those verses are about the purpose that God gave the Jewish people as a nation. And they were these things because they had the law and they had the covenants. And, and so they were instructors of, of the foolish. Meaning they were to, they were to carry out teaching and, and guiding. They, 
They instructed people on who God, who God is. They lived as God's people. They were examples, upholding the law. And they were, they were teachers of infants, of, of immature, uh, people without God or without the Bible or, or foolish. It's like a child, and God chose the Jewish people to be a teacher of His ways. I mean, if you want to summarize all of these, this ministry here, they're, they're, they have a revealing ministry and a teaching ministry. They, they proclaim and, and, they, and they teach. Jewish people were God's lecturers in His light. They were tutors and torches, instructors and igniters of a Godward focus. And it was necessary. Because after the fall, the world didn't know God and couldn't come to know God. He was lost because of sin. And so God chose Abraham as a vessel to change that. And out of Abraham, He would raise up a nation from Abraham, and that nation would have his law, and, and that nation would be, would be a light to, to everyone else, and eventually that nation would, would bring forth the Messiah. Abraham was to be a blessing to all people. And all the nations one day will look to Jerusalem. But Paul said the Jews had become terrible teachers. If all a person had was your life and your testimony, it's the only teaching tool that they had to know who God is and what He's like, how good of a teacher would you be? What image would they have of God? Would it be distorted? How distorted would it be? And the Jews had become terrible teachers because they'd become so familiar with God that the very ministries that were given to them led them to think that they were superior to the very people that they were sent to serve. I mean, verse 18 is already revealed where they, where they get the source for all this. Where's their guiding and their light and their instructing and their teaching comes from? Uh, come from? It's in verse 18, it was God's law that was given to them by God. It was, they had nothing to brag about themselves. I mean, what do we have to brag about? Our insight, our, our opinions, our knowledge, we don't have anything. We have the Bible. And, and the Bible is not even ours. It's given to us. It was given by grace. And dear Christian, you have a ministry too. Your ministry is to make Christ known to the nations as the church. It's our motto here to make Christ known and His word clear. The Bible says the church is the pillar and ground of truth. It's the foundation of truth. It it holds up the truth. You're salt and light. You're to go make disciples into all the world, baptizing them and teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. But don't ever think that, that those ministries, that ministry makes you better than the people that you serve, that you're called to serve. You're a minister, not a master. You were once blind, but now you see. I mean, can a blind man take credit for receiving his sight? Can a healed cripple think himself better than than the one that's unhealed? That's why we sing songs like, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked Come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's our cry. And there are people that have yet to to bathe in that that fountain filled with, with blood, but because we have been washed by that blood doesn't make us superior to the people that are out there still dirty. When we didn't have any sense to get under it ourselves without Christ. There are only two kinds of people in the world. Beggars who have found bread and beggars that need to be shown where to get it. And and your job is to bring them to the bread. not, Not be proud because your mouth is full of it. And our mouths are full of bread. I mean, we we are a blessed people. We know God. And we know what pleases Him and what doesn't. And we know how to live a weighty life. But the Jewish people got to the place where the grace that they had received made them feel superior. And when that happened, they failed at their calling. And it even led them to do something worse. They they even practiced the sin that, that God said that they 
they shouldn't do, which is the third indication that your religion has made you too familiar with God. It's, it's when blatant hypocrisy is excused. Paul asked four questions. I think you can boil them down into two. Uh, do you not teach yourself? That's the overarching question, and there are three tucked in under that. They're all about violating the law. Do you violate the law? Look, if you would, at verse 21. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do do you rob temples? I mean, Paul says the the pride of privilege had led them to the peril of presumption. They're doing these things, presuming that that they're not going to be called on it. So now he asks some penetrating questions to, to help them actually see their predicament. Now watch how he ups the ante here. Look back at verse 1. Remember, this is all together. So chapter 2. Look back at chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the, the same thing. So he's talking about judging back there. He's saying you can't plead ignorance. The fact that you have the capacity to see sin in somebody else and say that's wrong proves that you have the ability to know right and wrong, so you can't plead ignorance. I didn't know what is right and what's wrong because you see sin in everybody else, you just can't see it in yourself. You're committing the same kind of sins. And, but that knowledge is based on their conscience. They're, they're seeing something happening in somebody else. They're evaluating that, saying that's wrong, and then they're... They're, they're, they're basing that on what resides in them. They're evaluating someone in their hearts and, and judging they're wrong by their own discernment, which, which is easy to do. But now watch what he says in verse 17. It's not you who judge, but now it's you who teach. Um, in, I'm sorry, in verse uh, 21. You, therefore, who, who teach another... Do you not teach yourself? You, you judge another. Now, now it's you teach. You, you, you prove to know right and wrong, not just from your conscience, but you have God's source. You have the law, and you're teaching the law. And so he asked, do you not teach yourself? I mean, do you think that you're going to have God's very source and teach others what's right and wrong? And that then you're going you're gonna to just do the opposite of that, and God's not going to call you on that? He starts with therefore to, to show he's drawing a conclusion from verses 17 through 20. And he asks these four rhetorical questions that proved how they failed. I mean, a rhetorical question is one that you, you doesn't need an answer because the answer is so obvious. And what was obvious, Paul says, they were hypocrites. They had the privileges and they had the ministries. They were claiming to be God's people while looking nothing like him. And they also saw themselves as teachers of God's standards, all the while failing to live up to them themselves. And we can do that too. I mean, test yourself. Is it easier to see sin in someone else or in your own life? I can see it in you. It's hard to see it in me. You know the answer. It's what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye but not notice the log that's in your own eye? I mean, God, knowing our tendency, doesn't say, though, leave the splinter there in your brother and the log in you. He says, take the log out, purify yourself, so you can help your brother. It's not bad to notice sin in other people and help them with that sin. What's bad is to be a hypocrite yourself. We should be good spiritual ophthalmologists and remove splinters. We should be good spiritual orthopedists and be able to reset broken bones by where people have been overtaken in a fault in Galatians 6.1. But Paul says the way to do that is practice what you preach. Teach yourself. And it's a sure sign that your religion has made you too comfortable when you make excuses for sin that's so plain in Scripture that not even the unbelieving world accepts. 
when preachers fall into immorality and they get stuck back in the pulpit within three months after some tears and wrangling and otherwise, and, and the, the leadership of the church says, it's okay, everybody sins, and God forgives them too. When that happens, that doesn't even happen in the unbelieving world. They fire them. They're out of there. And when that type of hypocrisy or hypocrisy in your own life is excused rather than repented, it's a sure sign that you become too familiar with God I mean, you know the person, the individual Christian that falls into this category. It's the boss you work for that claims to be a Christian, is very vocal about that, and, but he has the worst testimony in his profession. I mean, none of the clients want to deal with him and because he's ruthless and hard-hearted. None of the employees want to work for him because he has angry outbursts on the job and he, then he blames everybody else for his sin. It's the, it's the Christian parent who demands their children learn Bible verses while excusing themselves from them or the... The dad who spanks his children because the Bible says so and then cusses often and hates his next door neighbor. I mean, Paul's point is not that those sins will never be in a Christian's life. His point is that Christians repent of them. And it's a sure sign that you've gotten presumptuous with God's grace if there's blatant hypocrisy in your life and you say, oh, well, God will excuse it away. Because all sin is breaking God's law, no matter who you are, and it, it dishonors Him. Here's the fourth indication, the last one. The fourth indication your religion has made you too familiar with God is when a blasphemous testimony becomes a reputation. We've gone from privileges to ministries to hypocrisy, and now it's sunk in. It's, it's a testimony. If you go to verse 23. You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, you dishonor God. He asks a final question and then he draws a a final conclusion in, in verse 24. For the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. Just as it is written. He says, you who boast in the law, you who claim the law is your hope, it's your treasure. Do you dishonor the God you, you, you claim to bring praise to by breaking it? Hey, look, we, we have the Bible. We're God's chosen people. We're, we're God's representatives. And while well, they were breaking it, to the point that it's the reputation. And Paul says, you're right. You, having God's law is special, but the fact that you're breaking it while you have it means you're dishonoring God. You're, you're not boasting in Him. And I can remember hearing as a young Christian, protect your testimony. Your testimony is your testimony, and it's, it's the only one you have, and it's really difficult to, to, to restore it. And religion can blind you to the point where, where you have such hypocrisy in your life that you can't even see the testimony that you have, but all even the unbelievers can see. I don't want to be like that. And so the name of God is blasphemed among, among the, the Gentiles because of you. Verse 24, that's the conclusion. You who do these things cause God's name to be blasphemed among the very people that they're to be witnesses to. It's a, it's a quote from Isaiah 52.5. It's when the Israelites were led into the Babylonian captivity. Remember, they're in Babylonian captivity because of their sin. And so here they are, God's chosen people, and, and, and the, the Babylonians have come and trampled the temple and, and, and plundered it and taken them out of the land, and, and they're in Babylon. And, and, and God is saying through Isaiah, the, the Gentiles, I'm blasphemed. You're supposed to be my people and give, give light to the world. And they're going, well, who would want to serve that God? I mean, we just took over his temple and let his people out. What, what God is that? And when you live the way that Paul's talking about here, then that can happen. Years ago, I heard a memorable motto that was, that was stuck between cuts on a CD. It was whispered between the, the, the pauses, you know, one song and then it stops and then another song. And the message was, it was really low. You had to turn up the volume to hear it. When I turned up the volume, this is what it said. I don't know why I remembered it. Probably it stuck. It said, Christians who confess Jesus with their mouths 
but deny them with their lifestyles is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And Paul says those who live that way are terrible teachers. They've gotten too familiar with God, the God who is a consuming fire, and they're giving the wrong witness. And long before anyone will ever listen to your words, they've already watched your life. And if you ever get to the place where privileges that have come to you by grace, you think that you deserve or the ministries that God has given you uh, lead you to feel superior to others around you, or, or you have sin in your life and, and, and you think that God will overlook that, or if your reputation, your testimony is so obviously unchristian, even to unbelievers around you, then your religion has made you too familiar with God. And you've fallen into deception and you need to repent. Paul will get to salvation by faith alone. In fact, he'll say that's the whole reason it's by faith alone. Spurgeon said, Paul saith not of works, lest any should boast. Now faith excludes all boasting. The hand that receives charity does not say, I am to be thanked for accepting the gift. That would be absurd. When the hand conveys bread to the mouth, it doesn't say to the body, thank me, for I feed you. It's a very simple thing that the hand does, though a very necessary thing. And yet it it never seeks glory to itself for what it does. So God has selected faith to receive the unspeakable gift of grace because it cannot take to itself any credit but must adore the gracious God who is the giver of all good. We adore this gracious God who is the giver of all good. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, we are a blessed people. We bear the name of Christ. We we have the Bible. We, we know what, what pleases you. We, we know the one true and living God. We, we boast in you. We, we know what a life of purpose is all about. And you've given us ministries, Lord. It, we're, to, we're to edify the saints and evangelize the lost. We're, we're, we're to hold up the gospel. We're to live it out to an un, unbelieving world that's dying and and I pray, Lord, this morning that, that, that if any of us have gotten too familiar with you to where it be, has become old hat, that today you, you, would, you would restore what, what our own hearts have devoured. You would give us fresh wind in our sails. You would help us to see who you are and the great privileges that we have. If there's any of us, Father, who's fallen into sin, sins even that unbelievers know are wrong, or our testimonies have become so putrid that we, we turn people off, I pray today that, that you would lead us to repentance. And forgive us and help us to rebuild those testimonies for your, for your glory, all by your grace. We thank you, and we give you praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.